First thing I'd like to suggest to you is ask the question, what do you want yours to look like? Let's just think a minute for some things about the Bible. Do you want yours to look like Josiah? Do you want your legacy to look like Abraham? Do you want your legacy to look like Esther? Do you want your legacy to look like Demas? And certainly none of them want their legacy to look like Judas. But we can no more choose not to leave a legacy than we can choose not to die. We're going to leave a legacy. It's just a matter of what that's going to be. It's a byproduct, a byproduct of our living. If I think about this present eldership, this present eldership is a legacy eldership. Because it's primarily a legacy of, of two men. Three. It's a legacy of Daryl Davis, Bob Bolton, and Joe Fagan. Those men in their time in serving set the future for the leadership of this church. And so when we think about legacy, I would say three things initially. Number one, to fuel the future, we're going to have to choose to do what is right. That's just fundamental. And that's easy to say. But when you put the shoe to the pavement, when you walk it off the page, it's a little bit different. There are choices to make that become challenging at times. But we're going to have to choose to do what is right. I think a second thing that's important in the beginning is we have to learn to listen. I persuade it's not the talkers that are the most important people and most influential people in this world. I persuade it's the listeners that are the most important people. And then I would say the third thing is we're going to have to give grace to ourselves. We're going to have to give grace to ourselves because along the way in choosing to do what is right, we're going to make some mistakes along the way. And while we are just people, that means we are some, someone and something created greater or higher than a worm. But as people, we're going to make mistakes, and we need to learn to ex, ex, uh, exercise grace, give grace to ourselves. If we can't learn to give grace to ourselves, then we're going to be absolutely miserable. I want to ask you to raise your hand. But how many of you are type A? Type A personalities don't like anything wrong. Type A people want it right now, done right, right now, perfect, no mistakes. And type A people that expect that of others are always frustrated with people because there's no, no perfect type A practice. Even type A people stay frustrated with themselves because they can't be type A. We have to learn to be gracious with ourselves. Extend grace to ourselves. And then I love the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15. When he talks about pouring himself into people, he talks about the more I love, 
the less I am loved. But it didn't stop him from investing himself in others. It didn't stop himself from pouring himself into others. He said, I'm giving myself to great expenditure in Philippians chapter 2. And I pray that it not be in vain. Because, borrowing from the book of Ricky, as far as you Philippians are concerned, you are the cherry on top of the ice cream cone for me. And I don't want to have labored in vain in doing that. I've poured myself into you. I've poured myself out for you. And really, that's, that's, like, that, that's the essence. That's the essence of fueling the future. And that is, how are we investing ourselves in others? Yet every one of us, I suspect if we took the time to poll and go around the room, have someone, as John alluded to in the last hour, that have invested themselves in us. And we would not be where we are if they had not invested themselves in us. So if you turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Deuteronomy, chapter 6. I know you're familiar with this passage. I want to read Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 1 through 9 real quickly and then make some observations from this and then move on to, to the last point. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1. Now this is the commandment and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. That you observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, be called to observe it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised to you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and there shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The first thing I like to observe about what Moses tells these parents to do is, number one, it begins with me. It begins with me. He's not talking about the kids here. He's talking about the parents. Notice the you he emphasizes there throughout the text. He's not talking about the children until you get down to the last few verses. It, first of all, begins with us. If there's going to be a legacy, the first decision begins with with us. Until I can get myself right, then nothing else I'm going to do is going to have an influence that is going to be positive. So he says, first of all, parents, you have to immerse yourself in this. You have to give yourself to this. You first have to be right. The second thing he talks about here is, is you invest the commandments. You give them the word. There's no, no exception to anything that we'll ever share 
with our children, our grandchildren, or our great-grandchildren, for those of us who will be blessed enough to live long enough to have them. And Lord willing, if I live in November, I will have my first. There's nothing we can do to invest ourselves more than teach our children the Word of God. May I make this decorative statement as kindly and as firmly as I can. It's not responsibility of the church to teach your children the Bible. And when we relegate the only biblical instruction our children ever receive to our Bible classes, good as they are, they are going to be spiritually insufficient and spiritually deficient. It begins when you have the opportunity, wherever you're at, on whatever occasion you are, to begin to share with them the Word of God and inscribe the Word of God on their hearts. If we fail in that, then we're going to fail. I'm persuaded one reason that Noah is the most successful Bible preacher in the Bible is because while he lost the world, he was able to instill the commandment of God on the hearts of his sons and their wives. And those eight souls were saved. Do you think Noah looked back when he came off the ark and said, Oh, I regret? He couldn't have had any regret that was deep because others had their choices, but he influenced his children, his wife, and his children's mates to be faithful to the Lord. It begins with us, but it begins with us investing the word in ourselves and then taking that word and inscribing it on the hearts of our children. We'll not do that perfectly. We'll not do that perfectly. But at least we give an effort to trying to teach our children the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God and serving Him in our lives. And they see that in us first. They see us reading. They see us being serious. They see us giving our heart to God. And they understand then when we talk about them giving their hearts to God. I think it dovetails back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. What Paul is saying there is, I give up my life now to write the Word of God in your heart, and the more I do that, the less I'm appreciated. Has anyone ever given you a gift? I'll just pick an exorbitant amount here. Has anyone ever given you a gift of $10,000? And the next year rolls around the same time they gave you the gift of $10,000, and you're wondering, are you going to give me another gift? They give you a gift of $10,000 again. The third year it rolls around. Oh, they don't give me $10,000. Now, who am I mad at? I'm at the person that gave me $10,000 the first two times, but didn't give me $10,000 a third time. Wait a minute. I didn't expect it. I didn't earn it the first time. You see what happens? The more we're given, the less we love. We begin to expect that as a gift that is continuous, and then it becomes an obligation someone owes us when it was just a gift to begin with. When we take the gospel and we write it on the hearts of people, initially they repeat it and appreciate it, but then a generation's come. It's appreciated less because it's something taken for granted. The third thing I would say of what this text teaches us is because he talks about when you go into the land, tell them your stories. What I mean by that is, tell them your family stories. 
I read a book maybe a year or so ago. I don't remember the title of it, but I remember the gist of the book. It talked about handing your faith down to your family. And in the course of that book, the author talked about sit down with your parents and ask them stories. I'd never done that with mom and dad. I knew some of the stories of mom and dad. I didn't know a lot of them. And so I was by myself with mom and dad one time. I said, I'm going to come, and I will, I will sit down with you. I'm going to ask you some stories. And we sat down, and for a couple of hours, I asked mom and dad stories that the author gave lead to, and I'm just writing notes about that. I had no idea that my dad rode a motorcycle from Currens, Texas to Greenville, Texas to work. I knew he was in the Merchant Marines. I didn't know everything about him being in the Merchant Marines. I knew he boxed in the Merchant Marines. I didn't know everything about him boxing in the Merchant Marines. I didn't know when we went off to the Merchant Marines, there was a girl that he really was in love with who got married while he was gone. And thanks be to God she did. Because Eva Marie Jenkins is my mama, not that lady. I know her from Adam, or I should say Eve. But I'm sure thankful Eva Marie is my mother, not whoever that lady is. Because when dad came back, he met mother. Here are parents, this will blow your minds. They dated three months and were married. <laughs> Brian, you going to go for that? <laughs> you find out all those things because you let them tell the stories. And then you let them tell the stories about why, they, how, why and how they came to Christ. My mother wasn't a Christian when my dad married her. What do we tell our kids? Marry a Christian. You know what dad did marry? He married a woman who had a heart for God. And she became a Christian. And one day I was taking my grandmother, her mother, to a doctor's appointment. And my grandmother informed me on the way to that appointment, the only reason your mother changed was to please your daddy. I thought, grandmother, you didn't know mom because she was at home. And you don't know mom now. Tell those stories. They're important to write things on their heart. Share with them the stories that are your history, your family history. Jonathan Edwards and his wife, Sarah. I don't know that I would appreciate, agree with everything that Jonathan Edwards ever preached. He was of a generation or two back. His most famous sermon was uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I think Jonathan Edwards probably scared more people out of hell than he saved them, but that's just my observation. Leon was mentioning his heritage last night. Jonathan and Sarah Edwards had 11 children who grew into adulthood. And Sarah was a vital part partner in his work. And he sought her for advice on her sermons and also church matters. They spent the time talking about these things. When their children were old enough, the parents included them in the discussions. The effect of their lives had been far-reaching. There were 1,400 descendants of the Edwards. This is their record. 100 lawyers and a dean of a law school, 80 holders of public office, 66 physicians, and a dean of a medical school, 65 professors of colleges and universities, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, three mayors of large cities, governors of states, three United States senators, 
one controller of the United States Treasury, and one vice president of the United States of America. From one woman and one man. Now, however many children we have, whether it be one or whether it be 11, there's going to be future generations that are going to be affected. But I love the statement of David that Luke records in the book of Acts. He did what he could in his generation. And the only legacy we're going to fuel the future for is how we affect our generation. We're not going to be able to do anything the generation that succeeds our time on this earth. But we can do all we can to tell the stories, write the Word of God on the hearts of those that are before us and with us by letting them see the importance of that in our lives and then see the results. Turn with me to the book of Ruth, please. The book of Ruth. Because now this is the object lesson of the whole thing. I want to share some things on the book of Ruth with you that I think are an important part of the legacy of Ruth. When we think about Ruth, we all know the story about how Ruth and Orpah come to the mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi's husband has passed away, Their, her two sons have passed away, and you had the Levite vow that took place that the oldest, when, when one son died, the next son married, well, there's no more sons. And she says, I'm an old lady. By the time, if I had more children, you'd be too old. And therefore, you go back to your people. And so Orpah leaves and she goes back. But Ruth says, I'm going to stay with you. And they go back to Bethlehem. So you have a Moabite woman who goes back with her mother-in-law back to the home of the Jews. Now, remember your Bible history. Moabites were not favored by Israel. In fact, they become vowed enemies along the way. And now you had this Moabite woman that's coming back to Bethlehem with her Jewish mother-in-law. But the thing I want you to see about Naomi, there's several characteristics that I think play into a vital legacy. First of all, I want you to see her loyalty here. Number one, her loyalty. Look at verses 16 and 17. You're familiar with these words. These words weren't given to, to be performed at a marriage ceremony. These aren't marriage ceremony words. These, these are, are words of, 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 of loyalty of one to the other. Now, I recognize there's a principle to be involved in that, but that's not why. Ruth wasn't written to have a nice wedding ceremony. And so it says, Entreat me not to leave you, Ruth speaks, or to turn back for following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. Lord, so do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. You hear the loyalty in Ruth in that? I'm not going to leave your side. I'm going to take care of you. Just a sidebar, what that shows is that daughter-in-laws and mother-in-laws can't get along and can't have a close relationship. But that's just a sidebar. But notice the loyalty here. I'm not going to leave your side. Wherever you go, I'm going to go until death parts us. I'm never going to leave your side. Look at chapter 1 and verse 8. And they always said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return east to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you. 
as he dealt with death, with the dead and with me. That expression, the Lord dealt kindly with you, that word kindly there is the Hebrew word he said, hesed, depending on where you put your emphasis. It's the covenant love, it's the description of the covenant love of God. The covenant love God has for Israel. And notice what it says then, if you look to put it there, the Lord have covenant love with you. The Lord had this covenant love with you. The idea of covenant love was there, and what it's saying is, here you have Ruth having this kind of covenant love with Naomi. I'm not going to leave you because I have this kind of covenant love with you. Sidebar, when you come to the book of Malachi, and you come to the part chapter 2, where it says God hates divorce, the hate there is not on the divorce side. The hate is on the side that goes before it. The reason he hates divorce is because there's been a covenant that's been broken. There was a covenant that was pledged. There was a covenant love that was pledged, and there was a covenant love that was broken. And it produced a divorce. That's what God hated. He hated the covenant love being broken. And what Ruth says is, I'm going to have that kind of covenant love for you. I'm not going to break that covenant love. I vow to you my covenant love. So you think about, again, you turn to chapter 2, and you begin to see that Ruth is also a hard worker. But you begin to see that Ruth is a hard worker. You, you notice that she's in the field working. And she comes home at night after working in the field, and she's got a lap full of, lap full of grain. And she goes out the next day and she works. She goes out the next day and she works. And she brings home this lap full of grain. They're starving. And Boaz had said, leave a little in the field because that's what they were supposed to do anyway. When they harvested the field, they were supposed to leave a little in that field for strangers anyway. And so Boaz says, leave a little in the field. And she goes by and she gets the grain that's left and she has a lap full of it and comes home. And Naomi says, where in the world did you get that? Well, I was working this field over here. I don't know who it belongs to, but I was working this field over here. She was a hard worker. She had a great work ethic. She was not someone who sat back as a sloth and complained about the things that happened to her in life as though she were a victim. She may have had every right to have done that. But instead she said, Naomi, I'm going to take care of you. I vow my love to you. I'm not going to leave your side. And she went out and she got to work and she provided for her and her mother-in-law because there was grace and mercy of a landowner who she did not know, Naomi knew, Ruth did not know, that helped provide for them. She was a hard worker. The next thing that you see about her is you come to chapter 2 and verse 10 then. And notice what it says here. She fell down on her face and bowed to the ground and said to him, Speaking now to Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a stranger? If you go back to verse 9, verse 8, it says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, You listen, my daughter. Will you not? Don't go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. The field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded you, the young men, not to touch you? 
And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face and bowed down to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that I should take note, that you should take notice of me, a foreigner? You notice the idea here is that she never thought of herself. But what if we had the Ruth attitude in our, in our culture today? In our me environment, our cancel culture today, our me environment. What if we had the attitude that Ruth said, that, that Ruth has, who are you to notice me, a foreigner, that you should pay attention to me? She never thought of herself. From the time she makes the vow of love to Naomi to this point, she never thinks of herself. In 1 Corinthians 13, in that whole list of things that give the attributes of love, it says, love is not selfish. Would you agree with me the bane of humanity is selfishness? Would you agree with me that the, 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 the launching ground for all sin is selfishness? The launching ground for all problems in all relationships are selfishness? And here you have Ruth saying, how is it that you can notice me, a stranger, a foreigner? She took no ownership. She, she didn't feel like this was something that was due her, something that was owed her. She realized that what Boaz was having for her was grace upon grace to provide for her. And she had nothing that to bring to the table that would offer anything of any value to him whatsoever. You noticed me, a stranger, and you've, you've, you've protected me from these men. These men are working in the field. I've told them, no touch. You leave your hands off of her. And don't go work in another man's field. You stay here where I can protect you and I can care for you. But then she said, how is it I found favor in your eyes, a stranger? She never thought of herself. And then look at chapter 3 and verses 1 through 10. Then Naomi said, her mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, shall not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he's winnowing, barring tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best garments, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, and did according to all her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was cheerful, went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lie down before him. Now it happened at midnight. The man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And she said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. Notice her resourcefulness in this. I recognize what I'm fixing to do 
is not exactly how that read. I'm telling you, I'm taking liberty here with this. I'm going to enhance this. I'm just telling you, I know this is exactly how it read. But Ricky's interpretation of that is this. Naomi tells Ruth, because Naomi knows who it is, as I said a while ago. Ruth, you've been working in the field, honey. Your, your dress is filthy. You look like the field. You smell like the field. You've been out there. You look like the grain. You smell like the grain. You need to go and clean yourself up. And you need to fix yourself up. And you need to put on your sweetest smelling perfume. And you need to put on your prettiest dress. And then you need to fix his favorite meal. And you need to have the sweetest tea you could possibly love. Kind of like at the Gallagher's. You have the sweetest tea you could possibly drink. And you go and you feed him. And she comes and she brings before him meatloaf, tater tots, radish-style beans, and a glass of cold tea. And he eats it and he drinks and he is as full as a tick. He's been working hard. He's been sweating. And now he's refreshed. Insulin kicks in. He lays down at the foot of the grave and he is dead asleep. And she lies down at his feet. That was not an overture of, Ill, of illicitness. That was not an overture of something that was, that was uh, immoral. When she lied down at his feet, that was the custom of a wedding proposal. And he wakes up and shakes his feet, and she's at his feet, keeping his feet warm. When your feet get cold, what happens? Everybody's cold, every part's cold. He's, she's keeping him warm and comfortable, and he wakes up and realizes she's at his feet. And here's the proposal then. Take me. He didn't propose to her. Take me. Sidebar. Fellows, we did not chase them until we caught them. We chased them and they slowed down and let us catch them because they knew they already had the hook. And it's just a matter of drawing us in. And that's exactly what Ruth does. She is resourceful. But the last thing I want you to see before the final bell rings, I want you to look at chapter 4 and verse 15 because this may be the second most important thing in the story. It said, And he may be to your restorer, a life, a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne you. Obed just been born. And it stated that her love and care for her mother-in-law is greater than she had seven sons. She is respected by all. You see that? Does you turn to Matthew chapter 1 with me? I think the most important legacy that Ruth leaves, besides her love, besides her loyalty, besides her hard work, her work ethic, besides the fact she never thought of herself, besides of her resourcefulness and the respect that she had by all, I think the last and final piece of her legacy to leave, to fuel the future with, is this. Verse 16. 
she was used by God. Obed's just been born. Jesse's going to be grandson. David's going to be great-grandson. How far in the future do we think? Probably not a thousand years. But notice how her use by God proved. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 1, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab. Amenadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David the king who begot Solomon. And you come down and there's 42 generations from Abraham to Christ and Ruth the Moabite is smack dab in the middle of it. She was used by God. They almost telling me last night after it was all over that really the, the genealogy research went back to the 1700s and there were several preachers there, probably in the line. Think with me just a moment. Just imagine this. I know this is unimaginable because it's beyond our scope of ability to do so. Think a thousand years from now if the world still stands. the number of people that will be influenced because we have been used by God. That's a future to fuel because that's a legacy worthwhile. At a separate close, but I'm going to switch and use this because I think it's powerful. We all know that Terry Bennett's mother died in excruciating way, being mauled by these pit bulldogs. Then surgery after surgery, graft after graft, until finally her body just couldn't take anymore. And we know this last Saturday, Saturday week ago, that Terry's mother, the funeral took place in Blytheville, Arkansas. Kyle had come down with his family from Boston. Kelly and James and their, their daughter had traveled to Blytheville. Terry and Beth, the kids and grandkids, Kyle's four and Kelly's one, are all in Terry's mother's house. And they're getting ready. What happens when you're getting ready and you're in a rush to get ready? Something always goes wrong, right? The commode began to back up. Is there a plunger? Couldn't find a plunger. Terry called his brother, but the brother of a plunger. James is in the shower. Next thing you know, you hear this yell because the hot water faucet had broken off and hot water is shooting out. And they can't find where to turn the water off. Stay with me. It's flooding. And finally, they find how to turn the water off. And if the water turned off, they call plumber after plumber after plumber before the funeral. And they all say, I ain't coming out there. It's Saturday. You can read all of your die poor. Well, I think it was. My time may be off here just a little bit, so be, be gracious with me. 
I think it was right after the funeral that Terry received a phone call from voicemail he had left of a plumber that was local. And the plumber asked him, said, uh, have you had your problem fixed yet? Terry said, no, water's still off. And the plumber said, can someone be there in 40 minutes? And he said, yes, somebody can. So one of the family met there in 40 minutes and met the guy and it took him a couple of hours to get everything straightened out. And it's about the time Terry was there and he said, uh, let me know how much you owe you tomorrow. Let me, let me know how much you owe you. You guys say, I'll tell you tomorrow. Well, Terry comes home, hadn't found out how much he owes the plumber. He calls his brother and said, call the guy and find out how much we owe. And this is what the fellow said. He said, I know what your mother meant to this community. I can't charge you. When Terry told me that, I thought, that's the close to Sunday morning. I know what your mother meant to this community. I can't charge you. I don't have big blinds of Arkansas is. It's probably not near as big as Dallas. It's probably got several thousand. But Terry's mother was known in that community so widely that her, of the way that she died, and they knew her influence and said, I can't charge you. That's a legacy that leaves the future to fuel. Thanks for being with me. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.